How do you organise a conference for the 50th anniversary of the World Futures Study Federation and both recognise its achievements but also highlight its ongoing importance and challenge? First of all, we're really trying to create a conference that brings together different perspectives, different ways and ultimately different objectives different purposes, so to speak, which also explains why we chose the theme that we chose, which is exploring liminalities, this idea where that things happen, where different worlds meet, where different perspectives meet, where different boundaries interact. Liminality is an anthropological term which refers to transition from not being here, not being there, being between two stages. Liminal rituals in anthropology, usually they are transitional rituals, for example, marriage, death, when people transition from one life stage from, uh, to another. And this term is used now in other areas now, referring to the transition. And we think that it's very appropriate because we are very much in between different words now. Those are my guests today on FuturePod, Helga Weigel and Martin Kellnan, who have taken on this challenging and exciting task. Welcome to FuturePod, Martin and Helga. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for coming on. So the first question for FuturePod, the one that all our listeners love to hear, is the story question. How did you become members of the Futures and Foresight communities? Maybe, Helga, do you want to start? How did you find yourself in the field? I think I spent literally half my life with future studies because I encountered it at the university. I went to the Economic University in Budapest. And I was not really, let's say, satisfied with the economic topics because I couldn't align myself too much with the efficiency and the optimization that was the main topic of most of the courses. And I was really happy when I had the chance to study future studies. It was an optional course and I fell in love with it. And I stayed at the department and I was a student assistant and then I stayed for researching and I stayed there for a PhD which actually I haven't finished, just for the record. Uh, <laughs> however, I encountered, for example, professors were bullying me, literally, for being involved in the future studies department, because it is something that's not really precise and it's not really useful compared to their economic approaches. And I really felt that offensive, but I never for one second doubted that future studies is literally the thing that I should follow and I should go with. And, and I really like the methodology. How does it deal with uncertainty and how does it actually leverages the uncertainty that actually the future causes us? And I love to be a futurist. I'm a professional futurist now after academia. I spent almost 10 years in academia with future studies after that I became a consultant and a professional futurist. And I'm doing that since then with a little bit of break. For one and a half years, I was an employee as a business consultant, but I managed to sneak in a little bit of future studies as well. And I'm back in consulting now again. And I just really like it. Helga, why do you think Helga was so interested in futures 
and futures thinking and future studies? And what is it about your early upbringing or whatever that the fire of futures under you? There is a list of traits of good futurists by Jim Dater. And one of the one of the items on the list is the insatiable curiosity. Yeah. And I think I always had that. I always asked questions and I always I think I was always an annoying kid and a teenager <laughs> just asking and questioning everything and thinking about weird scenarios. And that combining the things is actually a useful skill. Being able to combine these different approaches and different things in life is actually a good skill and I can put it to use. And Martin, what's your story? I'm the old man in the interview at this stage, the old white bloke compared to Helga, but I'm actually the newbie in the field. I've only actually been involved in futures for, at least as a discipline, for the past five or six years now. And I came to it in a very roundabout way. And I realize if I follow up on your question later or that you asked earlier, I came to futures through innovation, through corporate and through the absolute lack of innovation that, excuse me, that everybody kept going on about. And my career is mostly in corporate. I'm now at a business school, so I'm not completely still in that world, but still very closely related to it. And just little by little, I realized how much all this buzzing, talking excitement about being innovative, disruption, and so on and so forth, was actually empty talk. And I worked a lot with different methodologies, tried to bring groups and corporates and what you have you to try and be more creative. And I was never satisfied. I always thought that we were actually playing with the same ideas over and over again and just changing the colors a little bit, adding a little ingredient here and a little ingredient there. And actually it was all about marketing. Yeah. How can I sell this idea and make it sound new? Yeah. Yeah. And there was very little new. And, And then I fell into it by, as usual, serendipity, a beautiful encounter with Riel Miller a few years ago, who started talking to me, actually not even futures literacy initially, but we actually had a good chin wag about philosophy and uncertainty and how we relate to chaos or rather don't relate to chaos and not knowing. And one thing led to another. And by that time I joined the business school and that led to creating a UNESCO chair in futures literacy. And so one thing led to another, really. And suddenly I felt that we, I could actually change the perspective and bring back something and start engaging corporates in a different way and start maybe changing the actual nature of the discussion and the nature of, the, of what innovation means and how one approaches innovation. So that's, in a couple of words, my story. My question to both of you, because this has come up in previous guest interviews, is how did your family close working associates respond when you started to move in the direction of futures and foresight? Because often they have to be the first people that we practice explaining what it is we are doing, what this journey is about. And it's always interesting about how mothers particularly respond or children respond to when they start on this journey to this unknown thing called the future. A lot of questions about lottery numbers and the weather. 
as a start. Yeah. And then it develops into more serious questions, but there is always a doubt, I think, mm. in people's mind what it is really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My, what that question brings to my mind is my conversations with my daughters. Yeah. I and mean, I have a couple of teenage daughters and it's actually, I don't know if I should thank you for asking it because it's making me realize just how formatted they are already. Yeah. At 13 and 16, I'm realizing now that the conversations I'm having with them are very much already pre-formatted by a view of the future that is extremely closed. And, and it's not that it's difficult conversations. In fact, ultimately, when you get into it, they open up, but they don't come from a position, and maybe it's because they've grown up in France and grown up in a very Cartesian <laughs> educational system. Yeah. But I am realizing that I'm having just as much trouble, so to speak, opening the conversation, having a, a more organic relationship to the future and to futures. It's just as difficult to talk to my daughters as it is to talk to your corporate yeah. strategic CEO who wants results, who wants facts, who wants certainty, who wants to be able to plan it and have a contingency plan and so on and so forth. It's actually very much the same language. Yeah. Which is pretty scary. <laughs> Helga? For example, in Hungary, it is also very much predetermined by the language. What vocabulary do we use around future studies? And for example, it doesn't help that future studies in Hungarian doesn't have plural for the futures. It just doesn't, didn't happen like that. And there were discussions about changing it and introducing new terminology, but it's not easy. And the problem now today is that obviously the political climate is not really open in Hungary. And some new futurists emerged. They are not actually futurists and they talk about trends and they think trend watching is future studies. So actually that's more deteriorating for the conversation in Hungary. But it is very much also determined in a country how the language is treating it. Yeah, yeah. Futures by its nature is a political it's a political position to talk about the future, especially when you start to articulate preferences towards or against particular futures. Indeed. Or whether the government decides to employ futurists or yeah. not. And also what you use it for. The point is yeah. the future becomes a tool, like you say, and that's yeah. the political aspect of it. And it becomes a tool to achieve a particular end directly or indirectly, yeah. we, we are not aware of just how powerful futures can be, and they are constantly, and I was going to say, manipulated as if some people do and other people don't. We all use the futures all the time. Yeah. Yes. So in a sense, we're all constantly manipulating them as in using them. Sorry, I'm half Italian, so you see my hands yeah. going all over the place, because <laughs> I talk just as much with my hands as I do with everything else. <laughs> yes. I'm going to lean into the second question I've always found in the interviews, the notion of the philosophies or the frameworks or the approaches that we use to practice that are our preferences or the go-tos for when we're trying to do futures work. Can also reveal a bit about who we are. So maybe start with you, Martin. So in terms of a go-to approach or a preferred framework or philosophy that is core to who you are, 
clearly I fell into futures work through futures literacy. So as not to get into a, too much of a theoretical discussion, but the basic approach here, the basic underlying question that I'm fascinated with is how we anticipate and the anticipatory mechanisms and systems underlying our uses of the future. And what I'm so fascinated by, a deeper question, a deeper philosophical question of how do we as human beings deal with uncertainty, deal with the unknown, and how, we, and how all our anticipatory systems then kick in to try and reduce, ignore, control, adapt to, what have you, this underlying fear that we have of uncertainty. And so what really my go-to is I want to open this box up. I really want to try to achieve a place or arrive at a place where we're less scared of uncertainty because I'm convinced that fear is what paralyzes us. And in a time when we really need to change, in a time when we really need to start thinking differently, if we're coming from a position of fear, there is no way we're going to be opening the discussion. There's no way we're going to be imagining new ways of doing things. We're just going to double back or double down onto what we know, the tried and true, what we've tested, what we believe we can more or less control. And that's really, that's how I fell into it. And that's really what I guess really speaks to me. Yeah. A thing that I'm drawn to in this notion of anticipation is also the knowledge of how trauma affects people's ability to anticipate. You know, the data is that if people suffer deficiency and trauma in the present, they have a very foreshortened future or almost no future at all because they've almost learned not to think about the future because it becomes a continuation of our trauma in the present and past. So what's your take on how we have to develop anticipation to allow for people who might have, in fact, been traumatically dealt with in the past and present. And this is obviously a very cultural, how do you say, bias that I have here, having been brought up in Western tradition and so on and so forth. But at least my coping mechanism is I need to understand, I need to try and understand what are the anticipatory mechanisms that are in place? What are the heuristics that make it that I am going to anticipate in a certain way. And if I can start understanding those, then I can start opening the box. Then I can start realizing, okay, yes, trauma is going to affect my anticipatory mechanisms, my heuristics, because that is exactly what I'm going to project. That is exactly what I am probably unconsciously trying to adapt to, relate to, or just process and I need to understand that because I also need to understand that then my actions in the present are conditioned by what I'm capable of anticipating. And so if I don't open that box, if I don't open that field of possibilities, I'm just going to be repeating in one shape or another what I've experienced in the past. Right. What I do realize and what I'm really enjoying in this journey that I'm doing is I'm exploring other ways of dealing with trauma, other ways of processing these things. I'm finding that the Western view of having to understand it from a rational point of view, the psychology approach, there are various other ways of doing this. And I'm finding that very interesting. And that there are different ways of relating to the future and therefore to time. And that we have a very linear approach to time, chronos 
is our god of time. Yep. And, and we forget that there are multiple other ways of seeing time and therefore of opening up this the whole discussion of futures, anticipation, and our relationship in this, in this continuum, or not, of time. Thanks, Martin. So Helga, for you, when you are doing your futures work, when you work with people, organizations, even the university itself, what are your go-to frameworks or the things that you lean most heavily on? I try to use mostly qualitative approaches because I experience similarly as Martin and I think most of us futurists that it is not wired in the business culture to deal with multiple futures and things that doesn't have a high percentage of probability. Yeah. Uh, my master is in insurance mathematics, actuarial, actuarial sciences. And actually, in my dissertation, I was using foresight methods to calculate, to define what should be calculated. And they were not really happy with it because that was not the job. And they still said, okay, that was not the job, but they still gave me the diploma. But I refused to calculate something just for the sake of calculation yeah. because I think it's more important to think about what should we look at. And my university years and all the pushbacks, I think, gave me resilience in this in this field. Because in companies, there are still a lot of pushback. And sometimes there are very few allies who actually understand what's the role and what's the weight of future studies right. and what can it bring and what value can it create for a company or for any kind of entity. I worked a lot with the company of Derek Woodgate, the Futures Lab, and I really his approach and his methodology. He's more or less using the Houston method, but it is a bit different. It's a six-stage foresight process that he developed for himself, and it also includes an implementation process and how to hand over the projects and the ideas to the client. But that wasn't also straightforward how it started to work. For example, at my first project, I remember that I was complaining that how he does the scenarios is not how we should do the scenarios because I was teaching it for 10 years, so I must know, right? And then he, he said that he has a 15-year experience, so maybe I should follow his guidance and just do my job. And actually, I learned that the textbook uh, approach is not always the same as how does it work in practice. Yeah. And it was developing over the years. I really like the ideas and the approach of weak signals. I did a lot of research on that, and uh, I'm pretty specialized, let's say, to find them. I also do coding and AI development as well. So I'm also dealing with frameworks and developing foresight frameworks and scanning systems. So that's also part of my specialties, let's say. But in essence, I'm very much into uh, focusing on weak signals and making sure to deliver something to the client that is unique and uh, new and valuable. I also know that in my 10 years of practice, I learned that communication and presentation is key. It's really crucial. How do we present these crazy ideas and the wide futures? And we have to make sure that it has the right framework. I'm talking to the pair of you because you are organizing a very important conference for our field. So who wants to 
explain to the listeners what this conference is. So the World Future Studies Federation is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It has been founded in Paris, and for this reason, we decided to organize a conference in Paris. The Federation approached Martin as he is having a future literacy chair at his school, and that's why we have a joint conference together with them. So Martin, did you put your hand up to say that you would be the host of the conference? Yes, I did. I was uh, I was approached by Eric to whether this would be interesting or not, and and of course we love crazy ideas, and we love having fun, and and what a wonderful opportunity for us as a business school once again to create this bridge between a field, an academic field, and a federation that is relatively academic in its membership, to create the bridge and to create the connections with the corporate world. And I hope even beyond the corporate world, I hope we'll be able to also create connections with, with the various organizations and associations here in France and institutions that make up our social, political, economic, how do you say? Ecosystem. Ecosystem, absolutely. So did you know much about the Federation before you started this? Am I being politically correct or incorrect? <laughs> I had heard about the Federation. I didn't know much more about it. It was one of the various international bodies that were active in the field. I was more familiar with the French. The French have quite a strong futures tradition with several long-standing organizations, associations, foundations around futures. And so, to be perfectly frank, I was more familiar and more connected with that ecosystem. Since we're based in Paris, it was a natural, how do you say, fit. And, and no, I wasn't an active member, put it that way, of the Federation. Can someone, I don't want a full history of the Federation, but can we just, for the listeners who might not know that we have a 50-year-old academic European-based Federation, possibly go back and tell us some of the highlights of the Federation for the last 50 years? From what I know, having discussed with Futurible, who was one of the initial signatories of the creation of the Federation, it was a meeting, it was not a conference Per se, mm-hmm. it was a meeting of a whole bunch of futurists from around the world. Yep. And I hope we'll be able to expose the original Magna Carta, so to speak, <laughs> of, of the Federation, which is here in Paris. You yes. know, there is an artifact. We have an artifact. The first futurist conference was in '67 in Oslo. And they were focusing mostly on human development. There was a second conference in Kyoto. And the third Futures Conference was in 72 in Bucharest. And after that, they founded officially the Federation. I think it was very much aligned with the foundation of the Club of Rome. Yep. And it was very much of similar people working on the same issues. The Federation today has more than 300 members from 60 countries, more than 60 countries, and has more than 30 institutional members. And it's the most important, let's say, academic futurist body globally. And we are very proud that we have developed and we are going to launch the accreditation system. Yes, 
which is a very big step. There is a growing number of futurists all over the world. And also there is the networks are also expanding hugely. And it is very important that we actually keep the academic approach. I don't know if I can maybe just riff off of that. What I find really interesting is, yes, absolutely, in the field of all the work of the Club of Rome and all of that, and actually previous work, at least in France, once again, I know the French history a little bit better than I do, than I know the international history, the creation of Futurible in 1960 by Bertrand Jouvenel. And so already a tradition here, which is probably also related to the fact that UNESCO is here as well, and mm. there is a heritage, how do you say, connection vision or that, that that is here and what i what, what i find interesting is that just recently the united nations has identified futures and the ability to work with futures yeah. as the essential capability for us to achieve the ultimate goal of the united nations which is peace yeah true so i think it's i think it's interesting once again we are on a continuum there is a, the arc of history is still moving and, and there is a continuum here that is clearly still and always there 50 years later of realizing just how important, once again, tying back to the different discussions we've had about anticipation and our ability to anticipate and trauma and fear and how all of that mixes up and what a powerful cocktail that is. Unfortunately, it's a cocktail that limits what we can imagine and how we can move forward and so how do we open that up and i think futures is precisely how we open that up is realizing and understanding that we can use um, our ability to anticipate the way we think about the future the way we project into the future in a way that builds peace rather than like you say the next okay how am i going to save my hide when yeah. when the proverbial excrement hits the proverbial fan yes so what is it that you have planned for the conference this year? Shall we two-time this one, Helga? Shall we bounce off each other and have a little bit of fun? Yeah. Like we said before, first of all, we're really trying to create a conference that brings together different perspectives, different ways, and ultimately different objectives, different purposes, so to speak which also explains why we chose the theme that we chose, which is exploring liminalities. This idea where that things happen, where different worlds meet, where different perspectives meet, where different boundaries interact. And here I'd like to just shout out to one of your compatriots, Peter, Tyson Juncker-Porta, who, whom I love, of course, because he speaks of what you mentioned earlier, that his futures really big, really is all about talking and what he calls yarning, but deeper. He has a very interesting perspective on the importance of conflict and the importance of ideas being able to bounce off each other and, uh, and creating a space where this can happen, a safe space where this can happen, such that the conflict is actually interesting, creative, and allows novel novelty to emerge. And so that was very much the underlying, how do you say, focus, idea, inspiration of the conference and the theme, once again, liminalities. Yeah, just for the record, liminality is an anthropological term which refers to transition from not being here, not being there, 
being between two stages. Liminal lit- rituals in anthropology, usually they are transitional rituals, for example, marriage, death, when people transition from one life stage from uh, to another. And this term is used now in other areas now, referring to the transition. And we think that it's very appropriate because we are very much in between different words now. AI is almost happening and we don't know how it will be because liminality means that we don't know how it will be. And the future studies is a lot about how to discover something that's going to happen, but it's not there yet. And we think future studies is very much appropriate to discover these liminalities, exploring liminalities. And also the subtitle of the conference is Creating Spaces for Unlimited Futures, referring that there are so many open possibilities. So Martin, you're in an innovation school or a business school with innovation at the centre. And I'm going to say to you that a lot of conferences that I've been to aren't that innovative. This is a futures conference, and I would imagine if we're doing an innovative futures conference, we'll be doing some interesting stuff. That's definitely the plan. That's definitely what we're aiming for. And it's actually, as usual, in, I would say, all life, it's difficult to find a balance between what a conference is expected to be, so the keynotes and having the plenaries and being able to share this various perspectives, and creating a space where things can happen, where things can emerge, where we're not just listening to each other, but we're actually speaking with each other, and we're exploring novel ideas with each other, and where we'd like to create a liminal space. Ultimately, that's the object, is that we can create within this conference, that this conference become, rather, a liminal space in and of itself. So what we're trying to do, first of all, is to make sure that we have a lot of different perspectives. The reality, unfortunately, is that Future's work is actually quite, for the moment, still dominated by the West, by white males. So just already as a start, try to have a fewer white male voices. And and so just go get perspectives that come from different traditions, different cultures, maybe not Future's per se, from an academic perspective, but who are telling different narratives, are coming from different backgrounds. And so we hope to have actually, Helga was talking about rituals and how liminalities are moments of rituals, moments of passage. We are actually planning to begin each of our day of conference with an ancestral ritual to bring us to a liminal space to create a liminal space rather than enter in our traditional Western mindset of, okay, I'm coming from a rational perspective in which I am going to explain or understand or make sense of. Uh, We're going to try and put the sensing into the conference as much as the sense-making. We're also going to be organizing labs during the conference. So the opportunity for, once again, perspectives to meet to collide, maybe, to express themselves. We're also working and inviting. We would like to have some critical perspectives on our future's work. So once again, to challenge us, so where we're going, what we're coming from. 
So that's really the, in addition to, of course, the more traditional, I would say, ways of doing things. But that's what we're trying, that's, those, that's what we're trying to play with. We, we also try to make sure that everyone in the community, in the futures community, who's part of the Federation, <laughs> is comfortable and they have a chance to present their work. Other than the Paris in-person happenings, we will also have an online streaming session outside the Paris hours, those two days, where we will have online sessions and presentations. And depending on the requirements, we might also have it in other languages as well, other than English. One of the things I've learned through our going on five-year journey through FuturePod has been the penetration of futures and foresight and its application with young people. And there's the Young Voices Program, which is put together by Teach the Future. But I have been delightfully surprised to meet 13 and 14-year-old entrepreneurs that are using futures and foresight. Is it possible to bring the generational perspective into the liminality along with the cultural I love the idea, Peter. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think we have to find a way of doing that, yes. Interestingly enough, one of the projects that we're going to be talking about at the conference is about reinventing early childhood and how futurist thinking can help reinvent early childhood. So in that perspective, the group that is talking about this is definitely working with the younger generations, in fact, the much younger generations. And interestingly enough, a moment when when younger generations is a key moment when the mindset gets, how do you say, set, so to speak. Yeah. And yes, I think that's one way that we'll be answering or that we'll be speaking to that. But I really like your idea, and I'd like to, I'd like to be, let myself be let, let ourselves be inspired by that, so that yeah. we can do something more with it. We will also discuss the past and the future of the Federation, 50 and 50, the past 50 years and the next 50 years. And we will also organize a program where we are representing deceased fellows of future studies of the Federation. And so we can talk about and remembering their contribution to the field. Excellent. One of the things that maybe is interesting to build on as well there is that we all know that futures is very linked to the narrative. And there is a long standing because it was initially done in 19, late 80s or early 90s, the narrative of the next century, 2100s, done here by the 2100 Foundation here in France, which is being rewritten as we speak. And so the idea here was to maybe bring together this foundation and the work there and create a lab where those narratives that are being imagined through the Western perspective, and we would like to create a lab where those narratives are put together with African narratives. And so we will have, I hope, a whole group of South African, actually youth in this case, actually speaks to what you were talking earlier, and see how these two narratives can actually build off each other, and how maybe there is a still a different narrative that we have not imagined yet, that grows out of this coming together of perspectives. Uh, okay. For the listeners, 
when is the conference and where can they go to get more information on it? Is it going to be on the 25th and 26th of October in 2023? It's going to be in the center of Paris, in the Equa de Pont Business School. And we are launching the website next week. It's wfsf2023paris.org. The online participants is free. And for members and partners and students, we have a discounted price this time as well for the Paris conference. We will have also a few events before the actual uh, conference itself, because once you come to Paris, you might as well enjoy the city while still getting your, uh, getting your futures fix. So actually, actually, there's going to be a few side events on the two days previous as well, so that the details of that program will be available on the website as well. There will be half a day pre-event at the Schema Business School where students will present their papers. That's one of the already planned and set side event we are planning. So basically, expect to spend a week in Paris for that for that particular conference. A week in Paris is never long enough, Martin. <laughs> Thank you on behalf, as a Federation member, thank you for taking on the task of organising this very important conference for the Federation and the community. Thank you too for the pair of you for taking some time out to come and join us on FuturePod. I wish you well and I wish the conference well. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Peter. It was lovely to have this chat and hope to see you in Paris. I hope you will find a way to engage with and support the Paris Conference. The Federation is one of our key institutions of foresight and it plays a tremendous role in spreading futures and foresight. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist because of the generosity of our supporters. So if you like listening to the pod and would like to support us, then please check out the Patreon link on our website. I'm Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. <laughs>